We are in Luke chapter number 18, beginning with verse number 15 this morning. We worked through the first 14 verses last week. As we conclude Luke chapter number 18, we find here Jesus' instruction on commitment. We looked last time at some instruction on prayer. And here we find, through three headings, Jesus' instruction on commitment. He talks about childlike faith, complete sacrifice, and consistent expectation. So I want to give you those three headings this morning. Let's pray, and we'll get right into God's Word. Lord, thank you that you've given us your Word. You've given us the ability to have it and to hear it and to read it and think on it and to grow from it. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing upon this time. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and do what only you can as you work in our hearts to make us more and more like Christ. We praise you for this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin reading in verse 15. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. So the first lesson that Jesus teaches us here about commitment is that being a part of his kingdom requires childlike faith. It was common in this day for a rabbi to bless a baby. We also know that it was common in Jesus' life for him to be known as a healer and for people to bring those who needed a touch to him for either of those purposes or maybe for both of those purposes. We find here folks bringing infants to Jesus. Well, the disciples, they stopped them from doing this. Now, I don't know the disciples' reason or their logic, and we can speculate on that. It is interesting that they would stop anybody from trying to get to Jesus, but probably they just sort of begin to feel like Jesus' protectors, his security guys, you know, just kind of keeping folks off of him here. Well, Jesus rebukes them in verse number 15 for, for this, and then from there we get instruction in two different areas in verse 16 and 17. So in verse 15, he says, They brought unto him infants that he would touch them, but when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And then 16, we get the first lesson. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, little children, to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. So the first lesson I think we gain from Jesus' instruction on commitment is that you don't have to be an adult to be saved. Then in verse 17, he adds to that and saying, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. The second lesson being that adults are going to have to become like children in their faith and their wonder to be a part of God's kingdom. And adults, I would say we should emphasize more that warning more more than the first. Certainly we understand you don't have to be adults to be saved, but often as adults we want it on our own terms. Jesus is awfully clear here, isn't he? You're not going to come to me on your own terms. In fact, you're going to have to come to me with childlike faith. One of the best descriptors of childlike faith that I've ever heard is the term wonder. There's just a wonder, an amazement, an awe in the face of a child at many different times in life. And it illustrates for us very well the, the innocence with which we must come in faith to Jesus Christ. So the first lesson on commitment is that kingdom 
Commitment requires childlike faith. From there, in verses 18 down through verse number 34, we see him teach about complete surrender. And this is the story commonly referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. So we're going to read it and work through it as we go. Verse 18, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this this young person wants to know from Jesus how he can have eternal life. And initially, Jesus corrects his doctrine. Verse 19, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, and that is God. Now, that would lead us to understand that Jesus feels he calls him good in an attempt at flattery. And to sort of, I think Jesus is teaching this guy commitment through this very thing. He's pushing him to say, you want me to tell you how you can have eternal life. I want you to confess who I truly am. That's what he says to him in verse number 19. Why don't you call me good? No one is good except God. Are you calling me God? He's not denying that what this man said was true. Jesus was good. Jesus was a good teacher. In fact, we would say the very best teacher. But he wanted this man to see that he's something more than just another good teacher. Boy, has that become a key point down throughout history. Jesus is not like the rest. There are not many ways to one God. There's not many prophets under different names and different teachers and all. There's there's one true God and there's one name under heaven where we can be born again. And that name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one, and he's the only way. Jesus is making that clear here. He said it another time. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's not salvation in many ways. There's just this one way. Then Jesus answers this man's question. In verse 20, he says, Thou knowest the commandments, and he rehearses some. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. Now this ruler, he agrees and he adds to this, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now, I don't think this was this man's attempt at seeming sinless. You could for sure take this from this passage, and I think that's okay. That he kind of felt self-righteous, that he felt self-justified. Many would say, well, this man didn't even come to the conclusion that he was a sinner, need to be convinced that he was truly a sinner before he could actually ever be saved. I think this was just this man's profession that I've been true to my religion. He was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. There wasn't a new covenant yet. Jesus was bringing the kingdom. He was still having to tell them the kingdom is here, right? I'm standing right before you. I'm God. But up to this point in biblical history, the old covenant was their religion. And I think this young man was saying, I've been taught the commandments all of my life, and I've done my best to live by these commandments. But he still felt a void. Now that brings a different approach to this passage, doesn't it? We think about the rich young ruler, not just some boisterous, full-of-himself person who, when put to be all in, just decided, I can't do it. This is a young man who is saying, I've honored my parents, I've honored the rabbis, I've honored the priests, I've done what I've been taught since a child. But something's missing. We all would say, amen, we we understand that something was missing because we live in a time where it's no longer a mystery and the mystery has now been revealed. And 
And we're just brought up in Christ. Praise the Lord for it. Jesus tells him, he says, yes, there is something you lack. Verse 22, when now Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So there Jesus does push him to go all in, to be committed. He's teaching him here that kingdom life requires complete surrender. He's forcing him to question within himself, do you trust yourself more than you trust God? Do you trust your possessions more than you trust God? Are you willing to let God be Lord of your life or must you be Lord of your life? Are you willing to let go of everything to by faith gain him? He challenges him in this way. Sell all your possessions and and find out. Take the profit from those possessions and give it to the poor and then become a, a part of my penniless band that we have going here. Follow me and you can see what kingdom living is all about. Because he's asked, what must I do, good master, to inherit eternal life? Now, we mustn't take the doctrine here to mean the only way you can ever be saved is to always obey all the commandments and then anytime you have anything to give it away. There are those throughout church history, biblical history, who have attempted this sort of lifestyle and they're miserable and they're joyless and they don't seem to line up with what the Bible teaches about how we are victorious and conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is just Jesus pushing this guy to his limit. And your limit's going to be different. For me, as an 11-year-old, it was simply the dropping of pride. I didn't own any possessions to sell yet. Now, I'll be honest, had I owned those possessions, I might have been just like this guy. I probably wouldn't have sold them. Maybe I would have, I don't know. I didn't have a seat of power to surrender that Christ might use me through that. But what I did have was, in my own little 11-year-old world, my reputation. Cared about what people thought. And it took me being willing to drop my pride and surrender to the Lord to be able to be reunited with him. Well, sadly, this rich young ruler isn't willing to take that step. It's different for all of us, but this is a good illustration of what commitment looks like in Christ's kingdom. Verse 23 says, And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. What do we mean by that? He thought that he had too much to lose. He preferred to trust in himself instead of Christ. The Bible teaches us the principle of having much. For faithful in little things, will be blessed with that which is much. That could be possessions, it could be money, it could be power, it could be responsibilities. It could be lots of things in life. And it's funny how God is, well, it's not funny, it's wonderful how God has uniquely wired each of us individually to be more motivated one way or the other by any of those type things. But when it comes right down to it, if we're going to be committed, then it's going to have to actually be commitment. It can't be one foot in this camp and one foot in that camp. It can't be on Sunday I'm over here, but on Monday through Friday I'm over there. It has to be full commitment. 
J.C. Ryle wrote, Many are ready to give up something for Christ's sake, excepting one darling sin. And for the sake of that sin are lost forevermore. For a long time, this is what kept C.S. Lewis from coming to Christ. He did not want to give up his sovereignty over his own life. He wanted to be his own ultimate authority, but Christianity will not allow this. Here's what he wrote. He says, There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice of no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. Now my carnal flesh wants to amen C.S. Lewis there. I like privacy. I like some area of my life that I barbed wire fenced and I put up a posted sign and said, stay out. But before Almighty God, that does not exist and it cannot exist. Otherwise, we are not committed. In verse 24, because that is this man's decision, Jesus laments this. And when Jesus, saw that, when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And he makes a very good point there. It's hard for those who can trust in themselves or who've never experienced the need to trust someone or something outside their own intelligence, outside their own wealth, to place their complete trust in another. We were singing Be Thou a Vision this morning, and I went from proud to convicted, just like that. I was ashamed of myself. We sang the verse that said, Riches I heed not. And I thought, Amen, Lord, that's right. I don't heed riches. Nor man's empty praise. Oh. He said, Yeah, I've never given you riches, so you can't heed them. You're a poor preacher man. He said, But... Buddy, you're, you're very guilty of being prideful over the empty praises of humans. Oh, who picks these songs anyways? The illustration in the text here is of uh, a person with power and riches. Whatever that is in your life, you need to be sure, is Jesus Lord, are you Lord? Are you committed? Or are you committed to self? Commitment in Christ's era looks like complete surrender. So to be part of Christ's kingdom, we learn that there must be childlike faith and that there must be complete surrender. Verse 25 through 27, Jesus illustrates this with what we would call hyperbole. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, well, who can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. There is an interpretation of verse 25 that there was a gate in their day, in their area they had known about, that they called it the eye of the needle because it was small and it was short and it was hard to get, get a camel through there. This might have been what Jesus was alluding to. I'm okay with this simply being him talking about the largest thing that his audience could have thought about animal-wise, you know that they had ever seen in their lives. Like if I ask you all this morning, what's the largest animal you've ever seen with your own eyes? Not on TV, not on the internet. What's the largest animal you've ever seen? Elephants. That would be probably most of us would say, an elephant, it's huge, I've seen it. Don't want it to crush me. Go ahead and say it. All right, I was waiting on it there. Gave you the softball. (laughs) You got to get amens however you can get them in my world. 
I think this is what Jesus was doing here. He says, it's hard for a camel, they're thinking like we would think of an elephant, to go through the eye of a needle. They, they had needles then. They, they would have had to, you know, you ever had tried to do this? It was too late in my life. Did y'all know I sew? Yeah. But somebody took my man card already, so I might as well just embrace it. I can sew buttons on my coat. You have, if you're going to be a preacher and wear suits, you've got to be able to sew buttons on and things like this, so I can sew. But it was too late in my life when I figured out there's this tool that goes through the eye of the needle. You put your thread through there, and you pull the thing back. Isn't this great, ladies? <laughs> oh, some of you men are ready to vomit. <laughs> but it's a hard thing, you know, and, and before I knew that, you do the whole, like, lick the thing and, and try to stick it through there, and, and it just gets worse. It's hard to do. Well, it's hard to get thread through the eye of a needle. Now, you try to get a camel through that same hole, and it's an impossibility, and that's Jesus' exact point. And that's the response that he gets is they said, well, if this is what it takes to be saved, who can ever be saved? And then Jesus teaches on the doctrine that we should, we should all know. With man, this is an impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. Hmm. If you're not sure about your salvation here this morning, this is how you can sure yourself up. If you are sitting here this morning and you think, that's, that's how I feel about myself. It's basically impossible for God to save me, but I, I think he has. That's a good way to be. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, not by works that I have done or ever could do. I don't know why God would want me. I don't know why God would save me. I don't know why a sinless God would die on my, ha- my behalf. And boy, I'm just sitting here thinking, praise God that he did. In verse 27, as Jesus explains, this is impossible for humans, but not for God. The scholar Phil Riken wrote, God is the God of the possible, especially when it comes to salvation. Do not despair of getting to heaven because with God all things are possible. Do not despair of anyone else's salvation either. God can change the hardest heart. Amen, Jonah. Peter follows this in verse number 28 with a statement. Peter said, Lo, we have left all to follow you. And they had. And so Jesus reminds them in verse 29 and 30 that this is fully worth it. He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. Following him required commitment. It required childlike faith. It required complete surrender. Though Peter testifies here, we have left all to follow you. Jesus takes them a step further. Before I get into where he takes them here in verse 31, I just want to remind you here today, Christian, this is what the rest of your life looks like. Some of us, we just like to get settled. I just want to be settled. I want it to be like this, and I want it to stay like this. Any, any colleagues with me on that one this morning? Chance is very much like this. Doggone tornado came by and just screwed my world up. <laughs> I had my office just like I wanted it, our church building like, just like we wanted it. Things were fine. The storm came through Wednesday night, and I was standing over there looking out the windows, afraid. I was like, oh, no. I promise I learned my lesson. Lord, please don't tear it down again. 
And then the neighbors came over and stood with me. Thanks, Sean and Sandy. <laughs> they came over saying we, we didn't want to be by ourselves during this, and I, I was too bold to admit it. I didn't want to be by myself during that as that tornado came through. It went south of us, didn't hit us. So praise the Lord. And I take back what I said to you California people when you moved here. Lots of you said, is there tornadoes here a lot? I hear about these tornadoes. And I said, nah, we don't have tornadoes much here. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, the Christian life is not going to be same old, same old. If you've never read or watched the film, The Pilgrim's Progress, you should. It's a good example of the point that we're making here, that complete surrender to Christ is always a walk forward. We want to get settled and sit and be somewhere, but it just typically is not that way. He always has us doing and growing and building and changing and whatever. Jesus reminds his 12 closest here that that's what it's like. So in the midst of teaching them that commitment to him and his kingdom requires childlike faith and complete surrender, notice what he says in verse 31. He wanted to make sure they understood just how far they would have to go. Then he took unto him the 12, and he said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spit upon. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. So Peter did testify, right, we've left all to follow you. But Jesus gives the reminder here and said, not yet you have it. Christian, that's what complete commitment to Christ looks like for you. You don't know what is yet to come. You don't know what this life has before you. But you know that it has Jesus in it. The disciples would watch Jesus be beaten. They would watch Jesus be spat upon. They would watch Jesus be put on the cross. And they would watch Jesus die. But there was Jesus. And that's what the Christian life is like. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And he is alive forevermore. In complete commitment to him, there are going to be hard things in life. There's going to be hard times in life. But even in those times, there's Jesus. We sing the, the song. And he walks with me. He talks with me. And he tells me that I am his own. And the joys we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Those of you close to Christ, you've communed with him in such a way that you cannot put it into words to share it with another person. But he spoke to your heart and you've spoke to him in such a way that you wouldn't trade that for the world. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You'll hardly find a good illustration in the modern era of something you're going to have to face that Jesus hasn't faced, either that or something awfully similar. The final thing that he teaches here, and it comes through the story of the blind man, verse 35 through 43, is that commitment in his kingdom will be with consistent expectation. 
It'll require childlike faith. It'll require complete surrender. But it'll also require consistent expectation. Let me just simply illustrate consistent expectation for you. When I was a kid growing up, every day around 5 p.m., I knew I was going to start smelling something around my house. What was I going to smell? Supper, dinner, whatever you call it. And I, I mean, it was just, just like clockwork. And I could always say, Mom, what you cooking? And she would say, supper or dinner. But what I wanted to know was, are biscuits in the oven? Is there, are those black-eyed peas that you're cooking there? I had this consistent expectation. Well, in this story of this blind man who wanted to be healed, everybody around him saying, hush, you leave Jesus alone. And they said, we'll read here where he's, the more... They tried to shush him, the louder he would cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. That's what your Christian life looks like when you're committed. Just every day. And the the great thing we learn in the Bible about the Lord is this doesn't wear on him. It doesn't nag him. It's what he wants. He rewards this. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Every evening he wants you to ask, what's for dinner? Every morning, he wants you to ask, what would you have me to do today? Every mid-morning, he wants you to say, help, Lord. I've done what I typically do by this time of the day and gotten myself into a mess here. He's always wanting you dependent upon him for all things in life. Let's read together. Verse 35. And it came to pass that as he was come nigh into Jericho, a certain blind man sat beside the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. It's a great illustration on commitment. He will not stop asking for healing, even though those around him are telling him, Stop! Be quiet! The more they do this, the louder he cries out in help. This is a very familiar story to us all. Who in here today would say, I've, I've heard about this before? Yeah, like there's songs about it. You've, you've heard preaching and teaching on it before. I want us to think of it slightly different this morning. We've been looking at, I've been giving a little emphasis as we go through Luke on how, like the healing. I think we've become, if we're not careful, we'll become bland, dead, orthodox Christians who forget that we serve a supernatural God, who can do whatever he wants to do. But as we think through some of the miracles, this one is a little bit different. Notice what Jesus does here in verse 41. You know, in other times, like, like, like he spit and he, he made some spittle and put it on people, some guy's eyes. Sometimes he would touch and heal. Sometimes he would make a, like a, an outward speech, like, you're healed. This isn't quite what he does here. He asks the guy, what do you want from me? 
And the man says, I want to receive my sight. Jesus just talks about it as if it was a given. He's sort of matter of fact, isn't he? He said, then receive your sight. Why? How? Because your faith has saved you. It almost reads as if Jesus doesn't heal him. He just acknowledges that this man's faith would heal him. Receive your sight. His faith in Jesus, his consistent expectation, Jesus says here, saved him. This man could not see Jesus. He had to ask them in verse number 36, what's the commotion all about? And they told him, well, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. Now, Jesus of Nazareth at this point in his ministry would have had a reputation. He's not Jesus from other, some other place. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's boy. You've probably read about him on Facebook by now, right? And, and they tell him he's, he's coming by. But, but this guy, he believed in who Jesus was. He cried saying, he doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth, heal me. Hey, Jesus, Jesse's son, heal me. Jesus, son of Mary, heal. No, what does he say? Son of David. He's professing and affirming something. In fact, I think it's not by accident that Luke puts this story together with the story of the rich young ruler because the rich young ruler came to him and said, good master. Jesus said, are you sure that's what you want to call me? Because there's only one good and that's God. So are you professing that I'm God? Well, this blind man sure was, wasn't he? They were expecting a son of David to come who could do miraculous things and who would sit on the the throne of his father David forever. And this man who couldn't see him, but was waiting on him and knew about him, cried out twice, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Couldn't see Jesus, but he believed in Jesus. And he didn't believe in blind faith. He knew in whom he believed as he cries out, Jesus, Son of David. I think it's amazing as we study this passage, the miracle is that he was able to see. But prior to him being given his sight by Jesus, it is pretty particular what Luke points out that he already was able to see. He didn't have sight, but he was a man of vision. He could see his own need. As he asked Jesus, will you have mercy on me? I think most of us here this morning have perfect sight, but we cannot even see our own need for that. This blind man could see who Jesus was. He knew this was the Messiah. That's why he called him the son of David. There are lots of religious people all around him. They're shushing him. They don't see that. They think there's something unique about this man, but they've not yet figured out this is the son of David. This is the king of the Jews. So I would submit to you that because of his blind faith or blind sight, the first thing this man actually ever saw in the flesh was Jesus Christ himself. To be able to see Jesus someday requires that type of commitment. B.B. Warfield said that it is not even faith, strictly speaking, that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith, Christ himself.
This man could not see Christ, but he had the object of his faith sure. His faith had certainly found that perfect resting place. What did this result in? After receiving his vision, the blind man followed Jesus. He said unto him, Receive your sight, the faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and to glorify him forever. How do I know if I'm in the will of God? Is your life bringing God glory? You're in the perfect will of God. This man, as his faith had saved him, as he had received his sight, he chose to be completely committed to Christ. And this brought glory to God. And it caused all the people, look at that at the end of verse 43, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Not only did his life bring God glory, but it caused other people to glorify God as well. So I would submit to you this morning that commitment to Christ brings glory to God. So operate with a childlike faith. Operate with a mentality of complete sacrifice. Lord, whatever you want me to give, whatever you want me to give up, whatever you want me to let go of, it's all yours. And I am yours. And you're the master and I'm the slave. I'll do what you want me to do. And then operate with a consistent expectation. There are going to be times when those around you say, Hush. (laughs) Don't hush. He wants you to lean on Him. He wants you to trust in Him. He wants you to come to Him for the big things and the small things. He wants you to come to Him for all things. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan once preached on prayer, and a lady came to him after church. He was preaching on praying all the time, praying without ceasing. And she said to him at the back door after the service that day, I just don't like to bother God with the small things. And he said, well, that's okay. Everything in our lives is small to such a great God. Bother God with all things because you're no bother at all. The people around you may be saying, shush. But Jesus is just simply going to say, what is it that you want? This is what a life of commitment looks like inside of his kingdom. Are you committed? I mean, I would ask that initially just to say, are you saved? But I'm assuming if you got up and came to church on a Sunday morning, you are saved. Maybe you just heard about the meal and you came for that. That's all right. You could still be saved. But Christian, are you committed? You're saying, I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm one of his followers. What's your level of commitment look like? Is it like a one day a week situation? Three days a week situation? Got some three to thrive people in here? Woo-hoo. Or is it 24-7? All day, every day. Let's stand and pray.